Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Another bad weekend for the Toronto Blue Jays. Awesome. Really fired up to talk about it. As the Blue Jays continue hurtling toward uh, a record for most irritating season by an otherwise good team in uh, league history, maybe. Certainly in recent history for this team and this franchise. The Blue Jays dropped two of three to the Cleveland Guardians. They have now dropped four of seven to the Cleveland Guardians over the last couple weeks, in between which the Cleveland Guardians lost a bunch of games to other good teams and bad teams. The Guardians went four and eight in between the two Blue Jays series and then four and three across those two series. A lot of the same problems persist, certainly with Friday's five to two loss. The Blue Jays can get next to nothing going. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and George Springer, both homer, but that's it for the offense. The Jays only get eight base runners total. Chris Bassett was okay, not great. You know, you zoom out and his ERA is up to four at this point. Still fine for a mid-rotation starter, but it's been a, a lesser go for him of late. But realistically, a mid-rotation starter holds an opponent to four runs. You should be able to win that game if you are a playoff caliber offense, which the Toronto Blue Jays are not. So a pair of solo shots, all they get in that one. Saturday rolls around, the Blue Jays say, hey, it's the once a week. We'll start David Schneider. It's against a lefty. We could use a little offense in the in the lineup. He singles, doubles, walks, and homers. Huh. Huh. I wonder if if someone or all of the people watching this team could have brought up over the last couple of weeks that you have made roster decisions and transaction decisions based around keeping a bat on the bench that is there. You're allowed to use them. Blue Jays use David Schneider, huge boost offensively. Again, single double home run walk. As part of that, the Jays put together multiple big innings as a team. They win eight, three Hyunjin Ryu was pretty good around some errors. I didn't, I mean, it's nitpicking. I didn't love pulling him as much as the bases were loaded. Yes, but no hard contact, a couple of errors behind him. He had been monstrously pitch efficient and, and induced some pretty comical swings with the curveball in that one. Uh, Jimmy Garcia comes in, hits a guy to score a run, and then has three of the nastiest strikeouts we've seen from Jimmy Garcia all year. Bullpen mostly hangs in there from there, although the Blue Jays lose Eric Swanson in that game. It ends up he hits the IL with thoracic spine inflammation. As bad as that sounds, anytime you are, I think this is just the nature of the back is like, a couple of years ago, the Jays would maybe just call this like back soreness or something like that. Uh, getting as specific as thoracic spine inflammation. It sounds bad. Uh, Arden Zwelling reporting, though, that it's possible Swanson could be throwing within 10 days. Maybe not a, a super long absence here, depending on how he responds. Obviously, this time of year, any injury, you start wondering about someone's playoff availability, which a you have to get there. Uh, for that to matter, and B, uh, sounds like the Blue Jays have maybe avoided with Swanson here. Another scare in that game is Dalton Varsho kind of caught his leg trying to steal second base, oversliding the bag. He ended up staying in the game. Uh, no no damage there, although it looked awkward for a moment. So the Jays win 8-3, and you're heading into a rubber match. You think, hey, uh, Friday was really, really bad, but you're up against Noah Syndergaard. He is a probably shouldn't be starting in the major leagues anymore. The bats got going a little bit Saturday. Maybe you can put something together, take the series win at least. Instead, 
Blue Jays lose 10 to seven in 11 innings in one of the more frustrating games you can remember. Uh, again, Vlad Springer and Schneider all home run so that those three players all had multiple home runs on the weekend. That's your one positive from there. And I know you might look at, if you missed the game, you'd maybe look at the 10 in the score column for the guardians and hang this one on the pitching staff. If you're doing that, you know, you'd say, Hey, this guardians team hasn't scored 10 runs since they were uh, a fictional team in major league two. This is not a team that has much offensive pop at all. And as much as Jose Ramirez had a, a monster weekend and is an MVP caliber guy, uh, this offense came into this series with Cole Calhoun as by far their best hitter over the last month. That's what we're dealing with here. The way the game played out also, though, should nudge you away from worrying about the pitching side of things. Not that it was terrific, but the Blue Jays had many chances to win this game. Now on the pitching side, Kikuchi gave up four over six innings. Uh, he got touched up for a home run. It's the first time in a, a long time we've seen him give one up, but behind him, Genesis Cabrera and, and Jordan Hicks were fine. Tim Mesa got in some trouble um, that, that kind of kept this one closer longer, let the guardians not only catch up, but pull ahead in the eighth inning and, and the Jays would answer back. But along the way, a lot of frustration in this one, seventh inning, Jays put runners on first and second. Nobody out. Santiago Espinal lays down a, a sacrifice bunt to move them to second and third. And while I'm not the world's largest proponent of bunting, you're up 5-4 at that point. You're moving two potential insurance runs up 90 feet. You are at a point in the order where, I mean, Brandon Belt's on deck, so you, you have a, a confidence level perhaps in um, his ability to at least put one in the air. So they bunt those guys over, and it's it's Santiago Espinal at the plate. That's Bo Bichette's spot in the lineup, but he's out at that point, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, you lay down the bunt there, fine, whatever. I can, I can get there with it, even though you know it, it harms slightly your chances of having a big inning and putting this game completely out of, the, out of reach. So runners on first and second, nobody out. They sack bunt. They end up getting nothing. Ninth inning rolls around. Danny Jensen leads off with a double. And this is where... We enter the rare situation where, and people will tweet at you at the, about this on, on Twitter and not believe you, but the data or analytics, the boogeyman, whatever you, actually says, yeah, you know what? Lay that bunt down. Free of context. So what I mean by free of context is, if all we know is the Blue Jays score at this rate, the Guardians score at this rate, it's a tie game, it's the bottom of the ninth, there is a runner on second and nobody out. That's all the information we have. The numbers slightly favor bunting there. A successful bunt would improve your win expectancy from 81.1% to 82.7%. So you get a 1.6% bump laying that bunt down. Now there is a slight ding to Danny Jansen being a slower runner. And you don't have options at this point because two of your players have left hurt and you've used a pinch runner uh, for Davis Schneider in the previous inning to score what was at that point uh, a game-tying run. So you have nobody on the bench you can turn to as a pinch runner. The math gets a slight ding because Danny Jansen is slightly slower. That means your chances of, accessible, of a successful bunt are slightly less. His chances of moving up from third on a wild pitch are slightly less. His chances of scoring on a sack fly are slightly less. The math still kind of tilts in the favor of do it here, even with Danny Jansen being a, a below average runner. Then you look at, okay, well, Kevin Biggio hasn't been asked to bunt very much 
in his career, especially, especially recently. And, you know, I got a couple questions or, or tweets about, well, why don't the Jays have their guys coming up practice bunting more? And the honest answer is, is because most guys who make the major leagues were the top players on their team on the way up. And yes, organizationally, you could hammer your minor league teams with, yeah, in even if the guy's hitting third or fourth, if it's a spot that says bunt, we'd like our guys to practice bunting. That's just not like in practicality. Kevin Biggio was one of the top hitters on every team he played for on the way up. And there was rarely a situation where it would have made sense for his manager, often John Schneider, uh, to ask one of his best hitters to lay down a bunt. Now, with how Biggio has settled in in the major leagues, given what we know about him as, you know, a ball player and a guy who works on everything, et cetera, maybe you have a little more faith than the numbers say. But he only has two sacrifice bunts his entire major league career. In addition to that, Kevin Biggio is a dead pull hitter. So if you're thinking about scenarios where he's allowed to swing, the probably the biggest concern is that he strikes out there, you burn an out, and it's it's not a productive one. Uh, but if he puts the ball in play, generally Kevin Biggio hits the ball far enough to advance Jansen or puts it on the ground in a way that the runner on second could still advance the third. There are a couple of different ways. Elliot Friedman is uh, is in the studio here. Are you going to join us? I need you to talk me off the ledge. I've been watching the Jays since I got back. Uh, how are you going to help us here, Blake? Uh, I'm not. You're right our, now, you're I'm... our master psychologist or psychiatrist. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not good. I, I think the biggest thing make, leaving you confident right now is that the Texas Rangers are doing everything they possibly can to fall out of a playoff spot. Yeah. They've lost like a million games in a row. Mm -hmm. uh, you're about to play four pretty bad teams in a row. Mm -hmm. it, I don't feel great about it, though. I, I'm... Full disclosure, so you, I, I don't you, feel great right now. You're, you're a terrible psychologist. You are maybe the worst psychologist I think I've ever met. Well, I don't think a psychologist's job is to just lie to you and tell you everything's going to be okay, right? They they got to be honest with you, and if there's stuff you got to work on, they got to <laughs> nudge you toward working on it, right? Yeah, you know, I, I was I was I was overseas. I didn't watch a lot the last couple of weeks, but uh, like I always like uh, I always buy my playoff tickets. You know, I. I love the Jays. I can say this because I don't cover them. I love the Jays. I love watching them. And then I come back and, oh, it's depressing. It is. Uh, and they're two and a half games back for anyone who hasn't checked the standings today. Yeah. Uh, Texas, again, Spyro Seattle now leads the AL West. So the Jays are only two and a half back. Um, if you were looking for positives, you laid them out this way. Hey, David Schneider was another boost on the weekend. Yes. Maybe you've got a guy there. Your pitching staff has been one of the best three in all baseball. Uh, the Nats are really hot lately, but they're here and they're in uh, they're in fourth place in the NL East. Yeah. And then you've got three last place teams in a row. You. This is absolutely the time where you could go on a run and stack some wins against bad teams and catch Better. up a little bit. I, was it was it Bach who said the other day they got to go 12 and 3 or they're doomed? Yeah, and uh, you know, they when, went when, 1 when and Buck, 2 to start that stretch. Yeah, so now Buck, it's what 11 Buck, and 1. When Buck <laughs> comes out and says that, that's like the five alarm blaze. Yeah. And uh if we are to hold Buck to that, they now have to go 11 and 1 over the are next The Royals the last place team? Yeah. Oh, okay, cuz I'm going to one of those. Royals games. are last place, Rockies are last place. Um they play another bad team in there. Somewhere as well. And then Washington was in last place, yeah. but they're on a heater right now. Oh, great. Like, yeah. Just perfect timing. Yeah. Sorry about that. How's your summer been? 
It's been this. Yeah. It's been, uh, yeah, it's the rare day. You don't, there's uh, none of the World Cup games are, are particularly close right now in FIBA, so I don't have any of the games on in here. And Canada's playing again tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. And that one's at 9.30, so we'll have that one on in here, and I'll be doing my best to pay attention to both things. Uh, yeah, Dan Shulman doing Well, the, hey, look, the if Shulman duty. can do two games, the least you can do is pay attention. Yeah. You know, I always loved, uh, I always loved Shea. I've got a Shea t-shirt at, uh, at home nice but I, i'll tell you I'm, i've become a big dylan brooks fan it's uh he's one of those guys and, and we run into this and i mean it was the entire ethos of the leafs offseason yeah you hate that guy when he's on another team but when he's on your team it feels a lot different to have that agitator right? i know it got a little crazy with him last year I, you know i can't follow it all the time but i i think he sets a tone i, I really do i watch him out there and uh you know it's uh in 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 ho- I guess in any sport in hockey they say it's like who drags you into the fight like that guy that guy drags you into the fight I know everybody's excited about the Canada basketball and and it looks phenomenal but we've we've seen this movie before I actually want to see it happen we've seen the movie before I get excited but they they got the the game they normally choke in they mm-hmm. got out of the way first. Which is France. they destroyed France. Usually, it's hey. I, they, I guess France was the one who had the big choke this. Yeah, time. and then lost to Latvia yeah. as well. Yeah. So, so uh, and yeah. Porzingis isn't even playing. Correct. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, hey, it, that game tomorrow, Canada, Latvia. It, it both teams are already moving on. Yeah. But that's not a pushover team. They're tough, and they got a lot of shooters. And where France rolled over for Canada once Canada put it on, I don't. I don't think Latvia is going to do th- that. I don't think they're going to do that. So that a lot be of good fun. stuff. Yeah. Which I, I, which Royals game are you going to? The Friday night one. Nice. Yeah. The Friday night one. I wonder how much carnage Arash is creating in Indonesia right now. I think he's okay right now. As long as Canada's... I feel like Arash would be at risk of creating carnage if Canada were playing poorly. Yeah. Because he'd be miserable and, and that would bleed over. No, he's miserable or, all the time. Or if Canada wins, he will create carnage because he'll be, you know, insufferable down, down there. and <laughs> He's miserable and insufferable all the time. Yeah. Honestly, it's for him, it's, it's just got to be nice to oh, for yeah. him to not have to pay attention to his Minnesota Vikings leading into I'm this a Vikings season. Fan too. Oh, you are too. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I was watching Cousins on uh, on the quarterback. Still show. Kirk Cousins, eh? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, hey, you know, I, I I love like he's tried to be like Mister Clean Cut, nice guy, and now he's got that horrible food Manchu mustache. Maybe it'll work for him this year. That's a. I mean, you've you've messed around with the big oh, sideburns, yeah. long hair, and so we can see. Uh, Sometimes see that you have you. to just change up the look. Like yeah. it's important. Change up the look. Change up the attitude. I mean, the only Blue Jay playing well well right now is a guy with a big mustache. So yes, that's a that's a good point. Actually, see, we figured it out. There you Blake, go. keep killing it, man. You're doing a great job. Been listening. Thanks for stopping in, man. My pleasure. Nice bye. to see you. Nice too. As Elliot Friedman, nice little surprise. He'll be down at the Royals game next Friday. And if you are the Blue Jays, you are hoping that you are on a heater at that point. Because, again, you're playing some pretty bad teams in a row here. You are dealing with a Nationals team right now that was last place a couple days ago. They've won 11 of 15. You're then going to play the Rockies and the Athletics and the Royals, who are all last place teams. And nobody is going to feel better about the Blue Jays' chances of beating playoff teams because they beat up on some cellar dwellers. But... You got to get there, first of all, and this is their best chance in the schedule to make a little bit of a run. Here's some context for you about the Jays' inability to make a run this year. They only have one winning streak of five games or longer. They won six in a row at one point. And yes, 
if you win three out of every four games, you'd finish the season with a 750 winning percentage. You'd set the record for wins in a season. You don't have to do it in streaks. But for context, last year they had three such streaks. In 2021, they had four such streaks. They had four in 2015 when they made that big run late in the season. Even in the lean years from 2017 to 2020, they had at least one of these streaks every year, often two. This Blue Jays team has not done what most good teams in Toronto or elsewhere have been able to do, which is rip off a run where you look like the best team in baseball for a week or two. We haven't seen that from the Blue Jays at all, and it's not everything. But when you look at good seasons at the end of the year, or often even mediocre ones, they tend to include a stretch of a week or two, sometimes multiple stretches, where that team looks like the best team in baseball. And the Blue Jays haven't looked like that at all, and they didn't look like that against the Cleveland Guardians. To round out our thought before Elliot came in, going through the math of that Biggio sacrifice bunt. So context-free, the math says, yeah, actually bunt here uh, slightly. Then you give it a ding because Jansen's a slightly slower base runner. You give it a ding because Cabin Biggio's chances of advancing the runner without a sacrifice bun are pretty good because he's such a pull hitter and the runner's on the on second base already. Um, then you give it back a slight boost because Biggio's a swing and miss guy. Um, anyway, then you look ahead at Santiago Espinal being up next. He is a contact guy. So again, this is where there's uh, confounding factors. If it were a fast runner on the bases, you'd probably lean more toward, yep, bunt at the third because Espinal's a high contact guy and, and that guy can go contact play and, and take off on a ground ball. But Santiago Espinal, even though he's not a super high K guy, is not a productive outs guy generally. I know he had a couple of long fly balls in Saturday's game uh, to productive outs that way. But anyway, all the way all of this shakes out is that the math still says slightly to bunt there. I know a lot of people don't like to bunt. I didn't like to call the bunt. I think Biggio is a guy you trust to at least pull the ball. Um, and yeah, you, we're obviously splitting hairs here. We're talking about 81.1% versus 82.7%. Uh, but I got asked a lot about the math. So there is the math. Anyway, rolls around 10th inning. Jays have obviously a runner on second, nobody out. And they don't, they're not able to do anything with it there. 11th inning rolls around. The Blue Jays have nobody left in the bullpen. Uh, if you are looking at that game, Jordan Romano had already thrown 36 pitches. Jordan Hicks, Jimmy Garcia, Tim Meza, and Yenesis Cabrera had all pitched. Trevor Richards had given you multiple innings the day prior. So while you probably could have used him, that's an emergency situation. Your last options are Jay Jackson and Bowden Francis. Jay Jackson gets lit up in the 11th. It happens. It's the last guy in your bullpen, the guy fresh up from AAA. This is the cost of not doing things earlier and letting the game get to where it get where it got. The Jays add one in the 11th, but it's too late at that point. They have lost. Adding insult to injury, Noah Syndergaard, who they got five runs off of, but who was able to last six innings and who uh, gave the Blue Jays fits last time they saw him, gets designated for assignment immediately. Uh, after the game. So a little uh, a little kick of the dirt in the scrape there. Let's zoom out again because that the, the specifics of that game were very frustrating at a couple points. And I'm sure you all have your instance that you were most frustrated by, your coaching decision that you were most frustrated by. We dust off our Sun Tzu art of war, but war acronymed wins above replacement there. Uh, you can, you know, pick out a couple of different things there. The... Zoom out for the game 
is that you're supposed to be significantly better than the Cleveland Guardians. You had multiple chances to win that game on the way, whether it's getting to Noah Syndergaard even earlier and getting into an overworked bullpen over the last four days, whether it is executing in the seventh and the ninth when you had big opportunities, whatever the case. Each one of these micro decisions we are picking apart, and they're worth picking apart. That's the fun part of baseball, and these situations are going to come up in playoff games. My answer in this specific game is you shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. If you are significantly better than the Cleveland Guardians, which you are supposed to be, and you had multiple, multiple, multiple opportunities to blow that game open early, to add insurance runs at one point, to win this game walk-off fashion earlier, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't have to be in a spot where you're deciding between Jay Jackson and Bowden Francis and deciding who is the better leverage option to extend that game. You shouldn't be in a situation where, I mean, look, some of the bench stuff, it wasn't their fault. Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman came out of the game hurt. Uh, that forces your hand with bench choices. Alejandro Kirk was the only guy left on the bench, and you're not putting him into bunt. You're not putting him into pinch run. Uh, I get it. Even the David Schneider pinch run uh, where Kevin Kiermaier pinch ran for him and that run ends up coming across, you can nitpick that one. But at that point in time, the Blue Jays are playing to win that game there. I can at least understand that one. If everyone does their job a little better, you're not getting to those niche spots in the game anyway. And that would be my biggest takeaway is you shouldn't be playing so many tight games with the Cleveland guardians like this, because you're supposed to be much better than them. That's the zoom out at the game level. You zoom out of that at the series level. You shouldn't have been in a spot where you're trying to just salvage a win of the series because you once again, couldn't hit off this team at all on Friday. You zoom out on the season and you shouldn't be in a place where Buck Martinez is saying, if you win, you have to win 12 of the next 15 or you're toast in the playoff race because you should have taken care of business at a bunch of different junctures in the season. And that's where the frustration certainly sets in at the team. level. I think we've heard John Schneider swear a couple times now, not child friendly, not radio friendly. We can't play those clips, John, uh, Look, there's an obvious frustration with him. There's an obvious frustration with the team. We've heard a couple of the pitchers mention it. None of the guys look particularly happy about how things are going. And this is the cascading effect of, look, all games are equal in the standings at the end, but you do more of your work earlier. You don't have to deal with an entire September ahead here where everything feels urgent and everything feels must win. And mathematically, that's not the case yet, but it's starting to feel that way. The Blue Jays entered Friday's play with a 59.8% chance of making the playoffs based on Fangraph's playoff odds. Those are not everything, but to highlight how bad a weekend this was, they dropped from 59.8% to 48.5%. So you have dipped below the 50% mark. And now in terms of the likelihood that you'll make the playoffs and why that is the case is because the teams around you, with the exception of Texas, kept winning. You look at the American League standings, the Baltimore Orioles are 10 and a half games ahead of the Blue Jays. So put that one completely out of your mind at this point. The Tampa Bay Rays are six games up for the number one wildcard spot. And Seattle, the hottest team in baseball for the last little bit, the team that was on your tail, have actually done so well that they've jumped Houston and Texas in the division. And it's now Houston and Texas you're fighting with. And maybe it makes you feel a little bit good that Texas has been so irredeemably bad for these last couple weeks but they haven't been bad enough for you to make up serious ground. You're sitting here two and a half games out of a wild card spot uh, with 30 to go. And yeah, suddenly a series against the Washington nationals at home with Gosman Barrios and Bassett on the Hill 
it feels like a big deal that the Nationals have won more games lately than they've lost because you were so relying on four straight series against last place teams to give you a little boost here. Anyway, we'll see how Arden Zwelling feels about that in the 11 o'clock hour. He's going to join us in here for the entire hour in studio. Couple of minor updates from around the weekend before we get to a break and talk to David Schoenfield of ESPN. Matt Chapman left that game on Sunday. His right middle finger is inflamed, is still dealing with inflammation and soreness there. He is headed for an MRI. This is something that's persisted for a couple weeks now, even with a handful of days off. Have to wonder if maybe the MRI is going to say you should probably not be throwing a baseball and catching a baseball and squeezing a baseball bat and using it to hit projectiles while your finger heals. And maybe he takes a 10-day sit. We'll see. Bo Bichette is said to be day-to-day. That's a quad issue that's been nagging him a little bit. They call this precautionary. They say it's unrelated to the patella issue that put him on the aisle before. Uh, You kinetic chain folk and biomechanic people will know that Knee injuries and hip injuries tend to have impact on other body parts, quads, thighs, backs, things like that. Uh, It might be unrelated in an acute fashion of, hey, his knee hurt and then he hurt his quad, but it seems like it's probably not completely unrelated. If you're looking at who might come up for one of those guys, Addison Barger and Aurelvis Martinez remain at AAA. Ernie Clement can fill in all around the diamond. Maybe you move Whit Merrifield back to the infield. Nathan Lucas comes up. Spencer Horwitz had an eight-hit weekend for Buffalo. I don't know where you'd play him, but maybe if the plan is, hey, David Schneider's going to play pretty much every day now. We need another bench bat. You could do something with that. He's been up before, but um, again, as a guy who only really plays first base and hasn't blown people away in his rare second base and left field opportunities. He's probably just a bench bat for you. Uh, regardless, at least he's he's hitting well. Uh, the other note, especially if you look at, well, Jay Jackson came up, he got shelled. Maybe you need a fresh arm in the bullpen. Chad Green pitched Saturday and Sunday. He finally cleared the back-to-back hurdle. He has, I think, 11 or 12 rehab appearances underneath him now. The velocity's still not popping, popping, but the results have been really, really good for Chad Green down there from a walk, strikeout, ERA perspective, um, so maybe you give him a look. You do have a 40 man spot open because of the Paul DeYoung DFA and yeah, you have a path to him rejoining. We thought maybe they'd put that off for Friday when rosters expand by two players, but if they need to do some bullpen churn, wouldn't be entirely surprising. Uh, Alec Manoa is also in AAA now, but he's not listed as a probable pitcher. We don't know when he's going to pitch. Uh, he is maybe only there in spirit. We'll talk to Arden Zwelling about that at 11 o'clock as well. Uh, as we look ahead, Kevin Gosman against Josiah Gray tonight, Jose Brios against Mackenzie Gore tomorrow, and the afternoon series decider on Wednesday, Chris Bassett against Patrick Corbin. Again, Nats very, very bad for most of the year, have won 11 of their last 15. Uh, so maybe not the best time to catch them. Strength of schedule is fluid. Quality of competition is fluid. And as Joe Siddle always reminds you, and as was very, very clear this weekend, Strength of schedule doesn't matter if you are playing bad baseball. The Blue Jays continue to do that. We'll see if, with the benefit of not living through it day-to-day, things feel a little bit differently. David Schoenfield had the Blue Jays still in the mix in the American League at last writing, but on the outside looking in from an American League power rankings perspective, we'll check in with him about how the national view is of this Toronto Blue Jays team of this American league wildcard race. And we'll zip around the weekend that was in major league baseball, David Schoenfield next on Jays talk plus on sports at 590, the fan sports at radio network and sports at 360. 
discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. A tough weekend for the Toronto Blue Jays as they fall to two and a half games back of the wild card. A team that's probably had a tougher weekend and maybe the only team that could argue they've had a a tougher uh, August here in terms of how it's affected their playoff standing is the Texas Rangers who uh, dropped two of three, three or four rather to the Minnesota Twins uh, dropped a whole lot of games <laughs> lately. I just tried to count on the schedule. Uh, they're, they're going through it here. They have lost nine of their last 10. They've fallen out of the division. They're now probably the team that the Toronto blue Jays are targeting most in the American league wildcard race. If you were looking at ESPN last week and you're reading senior MLB writer, David Schoenfield, you would have seen a, a list of what every would be or potential contender needs to be doing over this stretch run and neither the Texas Rangers nor the Toronto Blue Jays are, uh, are doing that. David Schoenfield joins us now. Good morning. How are you, man? <laughs> Good morning, Blake. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm all right. I'm better than they're doing in on Texas radio this morning, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I guess let's start with that side of the American league wildcard race, because uh, you know, I, I know you and Jeff Passan last week still on, on the ESPN power rankings, you know, we're like, Hey, I, Texas will, probably pull this out in the West. They have the best offense in the American league. Uh, they just need to shore up the one game loss stuff. They did a bit of, they did themselves a bit of a favor by getting blown out uh, to oblivion on Friday. But again, on Sunday, they're right back to losing one run games. Uh, what's going on with the Texas Rangers? Should, should they be the team maybe that the blue Jays have in their crosshairs for, Hey, who's most realistic to catch up to here? Yeah. I mean, it looks like that right now. Yeah. Speaking of, Texas radio. I was on there late last week when they were still in first place by a game and they were already asking if this is a collapse. And I said, well, you do have the wild card to fall back on, but that race is so tight. Yeah. They blew another game yesterday. They had moved a Roldis Chapman in as the closer to replace the struggling Will Smith. And he promptly uh, blew a lead in the ninth and they lost an extra innings. The offense, which, you know, was so dominant all year, they're obviously scuffling this month. So, yeah, look, we've all been around baseball long enough, and we know when you get into these droughts, they can be really hard to break out of. You know, the pressure starts mounting, some injuries, you know, the pitching struggles. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you if I'm the Blue Jays. Who are you most likely to catch? It does look like Texas right now. So on the Blue Jays side, you mentioned there, sometimes when a team hits a drought, it's hard to pull out of. And it's only once it's happened for a couple games that you can exhale. Uh, The Toronto Blue Jays are in a bit of a mode lately where they only really score once a week and they score in in bunches then. Um, What you wrote about at ESPN uh, for what the Blue Jays need to do here uh, between now and October is that they need to find some mojo on offense. Now they scored a little bit more <laughs> on the weekend here in, in only taking one of three, but um, you know, from the, the national point of view, what is your read on, on this Blue Jays offense and, and why they haven't been able to put it together? Yeah, I know. I keep waiting for, you know, Vladdy to go on a tear and obviously they missed Bo Bichette. 
Um, and I know, you know, the reconfigured stadium is hurting their offense a little bit. You know, they've been better on the road than at home. But, what, they're ninth in the league in runs, you know. And at this point, it's late August. This is probably what they are. They're they're just a mediocre offensive team despite all the big names, you know. So are they still capable of a last-month tear? Well, yeah. I mean, yep. Coming schedule is going to help in theory, right? Colorado and Oakland and what Kansas City after mm-hmm. they play the Nationals. So, look, clearly they got to tear through that schedule. You know, I, I've watched a lot of Royals lately because I was watching them play the Mariners. They're terrible. You know, you got to at least take two out of three in that series. You got to go into Colorado and Oakland and maybe take five out of six. And then you're really putting the pressure on Texas because that series with the Rangers follows that easy part of the schedule. Yeah, this is uh, this is Samad Taylor erasure when you're talking about how the Royals aren't very good. Uh, Blue Jays prospect legend. We're, we're rooting for him. But yeah, that team's very, very bad. I'm watching them closely as the Mariners took three of four against them and the Royals almost came through with a split for the Blue Jays. Um, you know, that, that certainly looks to be the case with Colorado, with Oakland, with Kansas City. They are catching Washington on a bit of a heater here. Uh, do, do you do you see much in what Washington's done lately with this 11 of 15 stretch or just kind of the random lulls of, of the dog days? Someone has to win some games. No, I think they're 26 and 15 going back to whatever that date is. I just read that this morning. Uh, yeah, no, they're, you know, you don't look at that roster and say, yeah, they're not that good, but clearly the last month or so, uh, they have played well. So that's not a gimme series, no doubt. You know, a lot of young players on the Nationals, but they're rebuilding, showing some positive signs. Davey Martinez, you know, I think he's one of the better managers. He has that team probably playing above their talent level, you know, so you can't overlook them for sure. Um, so with the Blue Jays, and you mentioned it there a little bit, you're kind of just waiting for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to you know, have a, an offensive hot streak or something like that. You wrote back in spring training, you, you did this piece for ESPN about the most intriguing player for 2023 on each team. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was your choice for the Blue Jays, not because, uh, you know, the, uh, hey, you pick the best player because they are always fascinating, but because he had had this up and down stretch um, heading into this season where, yeah, he on the come up, he, he flashed some stuff. He looked pretty good, had the huge first half of 2021 and then cooled off a little bit in 2022. He has had even a lesser season here than he had last year. Um, What do you, I mean, you were unsure of who the real Vladimir Guerrero jr. Was heading into this year. Does this make you more confused as to who the real version of him is? Or is this, you know, a, a convincing data point that he's a good, not great, maybe player. Yeah, I would say a little confused. I don't know what the word is there in Toronto to explain. And you hate to say struggles. That's a little unfair. But compared to what he did in 2021, at such a young age, we certainly expected more monster seasons like that. And we haven't seen it the last two years. Although I think it's worth, this is maybe an off-season piece for me to investigate. You know, 2019 and then 2021 to a lesser extent were sort of the juice ball years. And I think we're going to go back and find out there were a lot of guys that had sort of fluky numbers in either 2019 or 2021 compared to what they did the rest of their careers. Now, does that fit Vlad? I don't know. Last time I checked, a lot of his, you know, um, stat cast data, the exit velocity, stuff like that. It's not really all that different from 
from two years ago. So I'm not sure why the power is down so much. I'd have to check his ground ball rate if, you know, you know, the plate discipline I know hasn't been quite as good, but I know for Blue Jays fans, there's got to be a high level of, of frustration at his numbers. Certainly there is. And, you know, it's been a common talking point here. And we'll get texts into the text line or callers in or whatever. And people disagree pretty dramatically on it. But the, the numbers are the numbers. He had two homers on the weekend. But still, we're looking at a, at a guy with, a, you know, an OPS around 785 right now who was, you know, OPS over 1,000 two years ago. It's uh, It's been a frustrating go. Uh, so, David, within this piece of what every MLB contender needs to do from here to October. Um, I, I'd like to go back to it because in addition to the Jays and the Rangers, uh, you had a couple of obviously the, the Blue Jays, AL East compatriots in there. The Orioles were top of the list for you. And, and you had mentioned, you know, specifically making sure Grayson Rodriguez gets to the playoffs, still able and ready to pitch. When you look at that team and they're running a six man rotation, they have another starter that they're converting to a short-term reliever in Tyler Wells. They have John means on the way back. When a team has such good starting pitching depth, but no obvious candidates for like, okay, who's starting game one, game two, game three. How do you manage that both down the stretch? And, you know, if we look ahead to a playoff series, what do you make of how the Orioles might handle that? Yeah, look, there's no doubt. You look at that rotation on paper and it doesn't blow you away. Um, You know, Kyle Bradish has been their best pitcher and he's underrated 3.03 ERA, you know, pretty good strikeout rate, you know, certainly, He's not a dominant, you know, kind of the way you view an ace, you know, but in this day and age, 303 ERA, that's pretty good. But yeah, after that, Kyle Gibson, Dean Kramer, these guys don't scare you. Grayson Rodriguez, the rookie, was really bad the first two months, went back down. He's been pretty good since he came up. But yeah, that this team relies on the bullpen. We know that's their strength in pitching. The problem there, their their all-star closer, Felix Bautista, just went on the I.L. I don't know. I haven't seen any updates. It didn't sound very promising, you know, as far, you know, elbow elbow soreness, you know. This late in the year, is he going to come back? And that that's a big blow. This guy's been probably the best reliever in baseball this year, you know, 8-2, and two, 33 saves. We know the, the the stuff is just lights out. So that's a big problem for them. You know, they have depth. You know, Yanir Cano presumably takes over as closer. But, you know, we all know that ripple effect. You lose one guy and everybody else gets pushed up. And, you know, so many of those roles are different. So, yeah, the Orioles on paper, even though they have the best record in the AL, you still uh, they look beatable to me in, in October. I, I agree with you. And it's, you know, they, they took 10 of 13 games against the Blue Jays this year. So maybe this show is not the right spot for me to say, yeah, I think the <laughs> Orioles have some weaknesses. Um, but yeah, and Felix Batista, anytime the term UCL comes up in, you know, elbow discomfort or whatever as well, yeah. uh, it's obviously concerning there. Um, the Red Sox are still kind of on the periphery of this as well. And they're, you know, four and a half games out of the wild card. But if we're saying the Jays are in the mix at two and a half out, then we probably have to consider the Red Sox in the mix at four and a half out. Are you surprised at all that they've been able to, despite not really pushing anything in at the trade deadline to, to fortify that they've been able to hang around this race and play good enough baseball to, to hang in, in a, in a pretty competitive wild card environment? Yeah, no, for sure. Mainly, you know, because they've had so many injuries in the rotation, although I think it's probably the healthiest it's been 
all year. So, yeah, again, good offense. They've hung in there. Um, I know, yeah, they're in the race, but you got to jump over Toronto, then you got to jump over one of the other teams from the from the AL West. So the odds are against them, but you know they've hung in there. They've given themselves a chance. But I, 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 this is the old school part of me. I always look at rotations, and I know starters only go five innings, and the bullpens are almost as important. But you look at that Boston rotation, and you wonder, can they really string together? another month of good baseball. I'm just not completely sold on that happening. I'm not sold on it either, but you know, short windows of time. You never know. I thought the Rays were maybe done rotation wise too, and they keep uh, chugging along. So the national the national league side of that piece, David, um, and not just the piece, just in, in, in general here, um, it, it has felt for a little while now, like in the national league and weird stuff happens in the playoffs, but on paper and the way we can evaluate right now, it's the Braves, the Dodgers, and then it's everyone else. And the Dodgers have done a good job getting hot and at least putting some pressure on the Braves to make sure they lock up the top seed. Um, do you think that that is a, a fair tiering of the National League situation, that it's it's those two teams, and if it's not them in the NLCS, uh, it would have been a pretty big upset on the way? Yeah, I mean, you got to rank it that way, you know, but as we know, any I hate to say it, it's a cliche, anything can happen. You know, in the Phillies, I would not want to play this team in October. We saw what happened last year. They were the number six uh, seed, and they go to the World Series. Same kind of team. They're not going to win the division, not going to come close to winning the division, but veteran offense that can get hot. Zach Wheeler, to me, I view him as an ace, um, you know, to, to lead that pitching staff in their bullpen, which kind of got hot last October, has been better in the regular season this year. But my sleeper team, and maybe this is just in the moment, the Brewers, eight straight wins, typical Brewers team. They don't score any runs, but <laughs> they don't make mistakes. They don't beat themselves, and if they have a lead, they close it out. Devin Williams, you know, he's been right up there with Bautista as one of the best closers in the game. And uh, with Corbin Burns, you have a guy that hasn't had his best year, but certainly he's been a Cy Young winner. He can get hot. Brandon Woodruff was hurt most of the year. He's back. And Freddie Peralta has been red hot. So you roll those three guys out in a series and you have a chance. So the NL, I'm with you, Braves, Dodgers, but – uh, don't overlook uh, the Brewers and the Phillies. Yeah, and I don't know if the Brewers would do this just for the long-term implications, but Aaron Ashby's on a rehab assignment now, and I look at their bullpen, I'm like, huh, you add another lefty in there, a young, even if it's just to kind of get him some, some work down the stretch, they become pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, some struggles hitting the ball at times. Our, our old pal Rowdy Tellez, uh, no longer an everyday guy as those numbers came down to earth, but it's a, it's a fascinating one there. So at the top of this National League, if we're looking Braves and Dodgers, uh, something interesting has happened over the last couple of days. And David, I know that uh, you guys at ESPN kind of did your, your two-thirds of the way there uh, award watch check-in a couple of weeks ago now. And for the first time, and this isn't everything, but the betting markets no longer have Ronald Acuna Jr. as the favorite to win the NL MVP. It's basically a pick em between him, Mookie Betts, and Freddie Freeman. Uh, what do you make of that race? And um, obviously, standings-wise, both of those teams are are pretty locked in. They're, they're going to be fine. Um, if you had a vote or if you do have a vote, how much comes down to you know, who has the, the kind of best September here for their respective top team? 
Yeah, it's it's a real fascinating race because, yeah, Acuna has been the clear favorite ever since he broke out uh, early in the year. You know, but I'm looking at baseball reference. Yeah, Buki has passed him in war. Fairly significant advantage, 7.4 to 6.3. And we know voters pay a lot more attention to that than they did, you know, even five years ago. Uh, the advantage for Cunha is he's got that stolen base total that looks flashy, 59 steals. He's going to be the first ever 30-60 guy. Maybe he ends up 30-70. So that looks awesome, right? You know, doing something we've never really seen before. But – you know, the stolen bases, they're valuable, but they're not super valuable. And then you got to factor in Mookie Betts, better right fielder. But not only that, he's played second base. He's played shortstop, and the metrics say he's been very good at those two positions. So that's sort of a hidden value just filling in for the problems the Dodgers had at those positions. So voters factor that in. I would. I don't have a vote, but I would factor that in. And The offensive numbers now are pretty even. I think if I had a vote right now, I would go Mookie 1, Acuna 2. I wonder, too, how the way that that lays out, and I know you wrote last week about how the Giants are still in this wildcard mix, even though, um, I mean, you didn't phrase it this way, but I will. Their top position player is 41st in wins above replacement in the National (laughs) League alone. They have done this without uh, any real contribution from the start. I wonder, does that nudge you a little further in, you know, Logan Webb's candidacy in the NL Cy Young when you compare him to, say, uh, Zach Gallen or, or, you know, Blake Snell, who's on a team that is, I, I think we can finally put a pin in their wild card chances. Yeah, I mean, both Cy Young races look like they're pretty wide open. I can't admit to having studied them hmm. super in-depth. Um, we do know Cy Young race is certainly less dependent on where the team finishes or what you have around you. MVP, no doubt, if it's close, if you have two guys, the guy who makes the playoffs usually has a little bit of an edge. Where Cy Young, that doesn't historically seem to be be a factor. Um, I think Gallon is probably the slight favorite right now, but I don't say that with any degree of certainty. Um, okay, before I let you go here, David, uh, obviously in the American League, we have a pretty good idea that Shohei Otani is going to win most valuable player. We don't really have a good idea, though, of how another UCL injury for him heading into what we expect to be maybe the biggest free agency in baseball history from a, a dollar amount. We don't know how that is going to impact things necessarily. Uh, what is your read having let it settle for about a week here on, you know, should we recalibrate Shohei Otani's market? It, does 550 become, you know, 450 or something like that? Or is it still too, too much of an unknown because, you know, all it takes is one highest bidder. What do you make of Shohei Otani's injury heading into the walk year? Yeah, I think it's, it's really, really hard to know. Um, first, obviously, we got to see what happens. Is he really have surgery? Will he just try to rehab and, you know, come back next year? We don't know. So if he has the surgery, obviously, that will affect his value. You know, you're going to lose one year of pitching, and then, well, he's got to come back from a second Tommy John surgery. Pitchers have done it. You know, Nathan Evaldi is, has done it. Walker Buehler's trying to come back from his second, you know, but there's no guarantee there. So I'm kind of with my colleague Buster Olney, who 
um, suggested. It seems logical that you would see a contract that's going to guarantee him X amount as a hitter, maybe $300 million just for his ability to, to be the best hitter in the game that he's been this year. And then pitching, you know, that side of the deal will be heavily weighted towards incentives. Game started, innings pitched, that kind of thing. So maybe he could still get up to a $500 million contract if he stays healthy. And then I suppose there's a possibility where he and his agent are like, Let's do a two-year deal, one year where he's a DH. He comes back in 2025 as a two-way player, shows he's healthy, has a great year, and goes back into the market. Would he be willing to take less you know, long-term money to do that? Who knows? So that's it's to me the free agency is just as fascinating as it was 10 days ago. Yeah, there are certainly more term possibilities now than than it seemed yeah. before the arm injury and he, he just turned 29 so even if you do the two-year you know you're looking at free agency at 31 i think you're still getting a, a pretty good long-term deal at that point uh david showfield espn mlb senior writer thanks so much for taking the time out this morning man i appreciate it yep thanks for having me david showfield espn mlb senior writer a lot of good stuff helping us set up these playoff races over at mlb.com of late, again, Jays ten and a half back in the uh, the division, not great. Texas Rangers, now the team we're talking about in the wild card mix because the Seattle Mariners have passed them by a game in the American League West. The Minnesota Twins, nice and comfortable in the AL Central, despite the Blue Jays' best efforts to help the Guardians stay and get back in that race. Uh, Jays two and a half back of Texas and Houston for the wild card. They will try to right the ship and start making up some ground. Tonight, down at Rogers Center, 7 o'clock game, Kevin Gosman against Josiah Gray. Let's take a break. When we come back, Arden Zwelling will join us in studio for the hour. We'll go over the weekend. We'll set up this little run ahead. We'll talk September call-ups. But most importantly, if you were watching the game yesterday, you would have heard Arden give a little bit of a taste of how excited Yusei Kikuchi was to get to talk to Mitchell Hooper, the world's strongest man who was at the game and threw out the first pitch. We go deep on strongman stuff with the strongman himself, Arden Zwelling, as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Joining me in studio, Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. Arden, a frustrating weekend results-wise, but not a weekend light on entertainment around the Blue Jays, not light on things to talk about, not light on celebrity sightings down at Rogers Center. Uh, the definition of celebrity, maybe a little different person by person. But uh, yeah, how you doing? How was the weekend? Good, good. Yeah, that would be like, if I could name a wrestler, I would name them and I'd be like, that would be like if you ran into your favorite wrestler. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I was talking to Jay Jackson on yeah. the show about wrestling the other day oh, because okay. when he played in Japan, he was like friends with a bunch of the wrestlers. There you go. But yeah, it so was yeah, like if you ran into some like esoteric Japanese wrestler yeah. at work, Kazuchika Okada be. was at a Blue Jays game earlier in the year. I just didn't <laughs> run into him uh, personally. And yeah, I mean, people probably there are certainly some people who, as this started, probably thought I was going to talk about Kevin from The Office being at the game yesterday. But we're not, oh. of course. We're talking about Mitchell Hooper, the world's strongest man. Throwing out a first pitch and palling around. Do you pick his brain for some tips or what? I didn't go that far. I just kind of told him that, uh, hey, I'm a really big fan. Nice. <laughs> and I, uh, it's been really cool following your career. For people who don't know, like he's from Barrie, Ontario. Um, and he was he's had a bunch of different kind of lives athletically. Like he was a golfer for a while, played university football. Uh, he was a marathoner for a while. Came to powerlifting and strongman really late in his uh kind of athletic career i think he's 27 now yeah. uh and uh which is just wild even as it is but uh and so he comes to this late shows up on the strongman scene and is like just dominating it's unbelievable like he won the world's strongest man this year second at the shaw classic to brian shaw who the competition is literally named <laughs> after and brian shaw is like probably the best strongman of all time certainly the most accomplished so like there and that was his retirement competition as well so he was winning that no matter what right so um, he yeah hooper probably had to <laughs> just like oh i can't i can't yeah. lift it this last deadlift i can't do it the legend wins in his retirement competition. Well, and Mitch, like, tears his hamstring on day one. Ugh. He tore his hamstring on day one. And, like, on day two, you still got to do a bunch of explosive stuff with your lower half. So, like, he showed me his hammy at Rogers Center. It does not look good. Ooh. Uh, he's training around it right now because, like, rogue invitationals are coming up. Like, the strongman um, season continues. But, yeah, he's got this great streak of podiuming in, mm -hmm. in strongman. Yeah, he only ended up on the scene, like two years ago it's like damien warner and decathlon like just kind of showed up and all of a sudden it was like whoa you're you are dominating it's uh it's pretty fascinating so not i mean the idea of going marathoner to strongman is fascinating like yeah. body wise the idea of a guy that huge trying to golf is funny um he's also he coached uh he was part of the coaching staff for the kw titans of the like canate one of the canadian smaller canadian basketball leagues too so he's got a, a little bit of everything and that's cool he's an exercise kinesiologist like he go. has a master's in that. I mean, he has a really impressive academic resume as well. Just an impressive dude all around. Yeah, that's uh, you were impressed. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, by the way, he was the first Canadian to win uh, the World's Strongest Man final. Uh, and he's only the fourth person to double that with the Arnold Classic in the same year. So pretty accomplished already for a guy just getting into this stuff. You were not the only one excited about it. You say Kikuchi was pretty fired up about meeting Mitch Hooper. I had to wait for you say to finish talking to him before I could introduce myself. And you say was picking his brain for like 20, 25 minutes. Cause you say he's into this really? stuff too. Oh yeah. I know that Kikuchi's like, I mean, you can see the arms when he, when he's walking around, you've told us about the 300 pitch bullpen sessions. I'm sure he's very into it, but like the 20, 25 minutes of picking brain, Kikuchi's going to come back. Jimmy Garcia size next year. Kikuchi wants Mitch Hooper to train him in the off season. Wow. Like that's why, like they were exchanging numbers. Like he wants Hooper to help him out. Cause Kikuchi's at like a plateau with his deadlift at 550. Okay. He really wants to get to 600 and he wants to do it this off season. It's been a goal for a number of off seasons. They hasn't been able to get there. So he's hoping Mitch Hooper can coach him through. And when you get up to weights like that, I mean, the technique and the breathing, like a lot of little minute things that go into it, 
can help you unlock some things. So I do think that Mitch Huber, who has pulled like over a thousand pounds in competition, <laughs> could likely help uh, Yusei Kikuchi with that. But yeah, he's like really into it. And like I bonded with Yusei Kikuchi over it because like you don't run into too many people who are into strength sports. So Yusei and I actually had like a really great conversation about it. And then obviously I told the story on the broadcast, which is wicked as yeah, well. Yeah. And I mean, I'm already thinking ahead to, you know, if Kikuchi gets to do this. You know, that's a ready-made, that is the Arden Welling story of Arden Welling <laughs> off-season or spring training stories of like, like, I know you're, I don't know, you're, I'm just, I'm picturing a scenario where you weasel your way into some of these workouts and you're there as well and telling the fly on the wall story. And then off to the side, you're like, also, I deadlifted 500, no big deal, while Kukuju is doing 600. I'd, I'd love to go work train with uh, with Yusei in Arizona. I'd love to see his, like, backyard mound set up that he has. That he yeah, had. you were telling me about this, and he has to rotate. <laughs> like, he can't have a catcher catch 300 pitches, and, and they need the facility space, so he had to build his own. The workout facility was like, you can't you can't do these <laughs> bullpens here anymore, Yusei. They take two hours. we got other guys. <laughs> so he built a mound in his backyard so he could do it at home. So, yeah, I want to see his training set up. I want to train with him yeah i will certainly be following up next spring on whether or not he got the pull that he's looking for so there is a obviously there's a, a fun element of this because it's something you're passionate about and you say passionate about and it's cool to hear about this guy from midhurst becoming the world's strongest man but there's also a very real hey every major league baseball team has strength and conditioning coaches this guy is a, a kinesiologist or, or whatever the specifics of his master's degree are and there is obviously there are obviously things that translate from what you're able to do in the gym from a weightlifting perspective to what you're able to do on the field from a baseball perspective. And I use this as a transition point because there were a couple interesting lower body related things <laughs> from the Blue Jays this weekend. I want to start with the Alec Manoa one because, look, there's a lot of weirdness around that situation. We don't know what day he's going to start yet, but apparently he's down in Buffalo now. But one of the things that has come up is that, you know, there's maybe a little bit of a strength imbalance between his legs and he thought his, his back was sore, or he not thought if his back was sore, his back was sore, but there's something in the kinetic chain there and the imbalance muscular-wise or strength-wise that is maybe at the root of it. Now, that's not something we can diagnose, but how much do you figure that will be a big focus of his offseason if you're in his shoes? Yeah, I think strength and conditioning will definitely be a big focus of his offseason as it would be in any offseason. And like he was dealing with, yeah, some quad issues, like a, a bit of an imbalance between his quads and also with a, a back issue as well. And that's part of what like the last two weeks were for him was just getting to the bottom of that and having testing done. And that's, you know, that includes not only imaging, but like strength testing and kind of like repeating explosive movements and things like that. And just figuring out if there's anything structurally awry. Turned out there were no significant structural concerns. So he was clear to report to AAA Buffalo. Or, well, he went to Syracuse because that's where the Bisons were. Um, the big thing for him now is going to get be getting back off a mound. I don't expect him to be in a game this week, honestly. Really? He okay. uh, like he didn't throw for two weeks. His last start was August 10th. Yeah. And he didn't throw between August 10th and the date that he reported to the Bisons. So he's got to go through a ramp up process here. He's got to throw a bullpen. Um, and then his first appearance for the Bisons, whenever that may be, don't expect it to be this week. You're looking at 45, 50 pitches. Yeah. Right? Like, and then from there, 65 from there. 80 so that's what like his next several weeks will look like 
as he tries to just like get back on a mound and continue working on some of the delivery stuff that he was working on prior. So obviously when Alec Manoa has been at the major league level, he has not pitched at a rotation caliber for a team trying to make the playoffs. And that's why he was optioned down instead of keeping the six man or moving someone to the bullpen. Um, I thought at the time, and I think a lot of people probably thought that he'd go down there and that's your SP six, right? In an emergency, he gets called up. If rosters expand, if there's a double header day and you get a 27th man, et cetera. Um, certainly the timeline on this is now different. Do you get the sense that there was some push and pull within the organization about exactly how to handle like deploy Manoa, whether it was going right down or, you know, obviously you have to take the players health and best interests in mind, but they didn't IL him and which, you know, if he was hurt, hurt, I think he would have pushed for because of service time. And, um, you know, you get your full major league salary instead of the, the option salary and things like that. Um, what, was there some discussion about the best way to have Manoa ready for the major? Like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how did they balance? Hey, this is what's best for Manoa long-term and, you know, getting him right for potentially an off season heading into 2024 versus we could potentially need this guy in a playoff race. Well, I think as soon as a player reports to you that they are dealing with some discomfort and with soreness and with anything that is an impediment on the mound, you want to get to the bottom of that. Two weeks, though. Because, well, continuing to pitch through that is not going to be in his right. best interests or yours, right? It's not going to be to his benefit. So you might as well get to the bottom of it now and figure out what's going on because maybe there is something more significant that you really need to knock out. Maybe there's a procedure that needs to happen, right? Like you got to, you know, you got to get to the bottom of something like that. And now that they have, um, he just resumes trying to get to a point where he can be depth for this team. The Blue Jays want to have Alec Manoa as a depth option because perhaps you've noticed not a ton of depth options on the starting pitching side and bad things happen to starting pitchers. How dare you? Wes Parsons has been lighting it up for AAA Buffalo. I, I won't stand for it. But no, you're right. The, the likeliest scenario is probably Bowden Francis bulks a game and you call up an extra reliever if you have a, a need for that. Like right now, your number six is Bowden Francis. Yes. Yeah. And like by merit as well. Even like if, Al, if Alec Manoa honestly was healthy and available, I think Bowden Francis by merit would be your number six as well. Because look, he, like, he throws strikes. Commands the zone, doesn't walk anybody. Velocity is there. Five walks in 27 innings heading yeah. into this weekend or something like that. Velocity is really consistent, composed on the mound, controls the game well. I mean, routines, habits, all that stuff is all solid. And he's done it at the big league level. Mm-hmm. Really good breaking ball. Can turn a lineup over twice. You can stretch him out. So, Bowden Francis is your number six. Right now, your number seven is like Trevor Richards for three innings and bullpen it the rest of the way. Um, unless we want to talk about like adding Zach Thompson to the, to the 40 again. So didn't they trade him Zach Thompson? Oh no. Maybe there, there were all those rumors that he was going to get dealt. Uh, mm. there was a lot around the trade deadline. Yeah. So I, and Zach Thompson's had a fine year with AAA Buffalo. Any team could have had him when he was DFA'd and, you know, removed from the 40 man and no team wanted him. I mean, that, that would be like, that's the level of depth we're talking about right now. That's why the Blue Jays are trying to get Alec Manoa back up and throwing again. Um, but Mitch White's had two good starts in a row. You know what? Are you ready to believe? Oh man, I forgot Mitch White. He one or one earned over three and two earned over four. This is the level of depth we're talking about. This, this is, is yeah, yeah. Why why the Blue Jays wanted Alec Manoa to be available and, and why option one A by a long shot would be hey move Bowden Francis into the rotation because you have a, way more relief pitching options than you have uh, starting options. That took a hit a little bit. We'll, we'll stay on kind of the, the injury stuff here. Eric Swanson hit the IL. I think people see, first of all, him come out of a game, which given the workload he's had this year is unusual for him. He, he's kind of been a workhorse for them. And then they see the term 
thoracic spine inflammation. That sounds worse than, hey, his back's a little sore. But uh, <laughs> what what did you make of that? I, th- I think I saw you tweet that it's possible he could be throwing again within 10 days. That's the honestly the expectation okay. is that he'll be thrown within 10 days and like out for a rehab appearance within 13 and off the IL. So miss the minimum. On the minimum. Um, it's like something that he's been carrying for a little bit, obviously. Like it was really barking in that outing that we saw him come out of. It's the sort of deal it was it was compared to me um sort of like the trevor richards issue earlier this month where it was eh, he probably needs about five to seven days off we could carry him and go short in our bullpen but is that really putting ourselves in the best possible position we're still far enough away from the finish line that we right. can we can you know withstand the 15 days without and buy him an extra maybe three four days that he would have been trying to pitch through otherwise similar to when Jordan Romano had his back issue for the second time it was yeah he probably needs five to seven days realistically and yeah. it's just right in the middle of that you know it's a 15 day 17 or, and 17 stretch and yeah, all that yeah. or you don't put him on so like instead of trying to kind of you know carry him and go short they decided all right put him on the IL but yeah Eric Swanson I expect to be back with the Blue Jays within 15 days mm-hmm. I expect back on a mound within 10. Nice. Uh, so Jay Jackson got the call. Now there are a couple of guys in Jackson and Baton Francis and Yenesis Cabrera who still have options here. A couple guys at AAA they could call on if they need. You know, I think they'd like Nate Pearson to get some regularity down with AAA rather than the the up and down and stuff there. They'll also get an extra arm on Friday when rosters expand. Uh, Chad Green pitched both Saturday and I can't remember if it's Saturday and Sunday or Friday and Saturday, but he pitched back to back on the weekend. And all good. Results continue to be great. He had that one game where he hung a slider to Brett Beatty, and that's it over like 11 or 12 rehab appearances now. Um, We talked about last week, you know, what makes the most sense is you just wait for Friday at this point. Possible as a means of freshening up the bullpen after this weekend that we see him even sooner than that? It's possible. It kind of depends on the next few days go. Like the optimal way is September 1st. Because right now, if you option Jay Jackson, you can only bring him back without an injury. Like you got to wait 10, 15 days, Mm -hmm. is it? Right? I think it's the 15, but I'm not sure if that is loosened for September 1st. No, I asked on the weekend. It doesn't reset on September 1st. So he'd have to stay on option for 15 days. So you'd then have to, you know, bring up Nate Pearson or whoever on instead. And Chad Green is not pitching today because I believe the back-to-back was Saturday, Sunday. So he's not pitching today, no matter what. So really, you are just checking in with him, seeing how he's feeling. And then you've got an off day Thursday, so you can save the bullpen a little bit there anyway. You could probably string this out till September 1st. That extra pitcher spot that opens up on September 1st, that's Chad Green's. Um, the extra yeah, I don't think that's spot. any question at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's open. That's Chad Green's. The extra position player spot, that's Nathan Lucas's spot. He's... What I believe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, does Sorry, I just took your next question from Well, me. no. Well, that was a question, but on the way to that question is, well, what if Bobachet and Matt Chapman are more banged up than day-to-day? So Bobachet leaves yesterday's game with, and we'll go back to kinetic chain and deadlift stuff here. You come back from a knee injury and then your quad starts barking. I know they said they're not related, but they're probably not like unrelated, right? That was John Schneider speaking after a game, and yeah, he's not an exercise scientist. So, what like, did uh, what did Strongman think <laughs> when you asked him? I saw him on Friday, yeah. and the bow thing happened on Sundays. But but 
honestly, Mitchell Hooper would know. Yeah. <laughs> like legitimately would know. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if it's connected or not. I think Bo Bichette's going to be banged up for the rest of the year. I think he's going to be playing with discomfort for the rest of the year. I we think saw him get a DH day on the weekend too, just in case. Wouldn't be surprised to see some more of those. Like I think that when you play shortstop every day and you take 650 plate appearances a year, you're going to deal with some soreness and some discomfort. Like, yeah. I think that's part of that gig. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, and part of what makes him so valuable as a guy who, with the exception of the two weeks down this year has been, I mean, even with that still, I think he'll probably end up at the end of this year, maybe semi and tops him, but he's going to be like right there for most plate appearances in the American league over the last three seasons. And, and he'll be first in hits. And when Bo went down with the patellar tendonitis, what I was told at the time was this is going to be a three week deal. Mm -hmm. And he beat that back. It was like two and a half weeks. He was back to the majors. So, I mean, he's clearly a guy who works incredibly hard, who attacks his rehabs, who takes really good care of himself who has really good habits routines away from the field that's why he's able to play as much as he does and obviously like a great athlete as well but yeah i mean he's gonna be banged up the rest of the year but i don't expect him to go on the il with this not uh certainly don't want to ding him for hey you're playing through some stuff and you haven't been quite yourself at the plate but in the eight games since he's returned 629 OPS. Is this something where he's banged up and you'd expect a performance dip or is this just kind of an eight game blip because this happens? It's kind of one of those Bobichet streaks, right? Yeah. Like it kind of ha with an approach as aggressive as his. And then he'll have four hits tonight or something and it happens, right? So yeah, I expect him to be Bobichet the rest of the way. It's that time of year, man. Everybody's yeah. everybody's carrying something whether we know about it or not. Everybody on that team has something. Yeah, it's this is, I remember is. the Raptors championship run and like by the time the finals walked around, like every single person in that locker room looked like they were walking on their tiptoes with like bow legged because everyone had something they were like Danny Green was like not mobile <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, by that point. Uh, so with the Boba Shet thing, obviously you can't navigate that something else might come up or it might flare up, but we do see again pretty quickly of the, this idea of, well, you DFA'd Paul DeYoung and... Now your shortstop insurance is Santiago Espinal and giant question mark. Does this change anything? I mean, I don't know if I even ever got to ask you about your opinion about the DeYoung DFA versus, you know, hanging around it and massaging that differently. Um, it, I guess the succession plan is just a lot of Santiago Espinal if Bo is banged up or at some point something comes up. Yeah, part of the calculus with DeYoung being DFA'd was the Blue Jays were reasonably confident that Bo Bichette would be able to play a lot of shortstop the rest of the way. I think that's still the belief. Um, part of it as well is you are just more invested in a Santiago Espinal and a Davis Schneider beyond this season. Mm -hmm. So it would have been like a pretty tough look to option one of those guys when Paul DeYoung was two for a million. Right. Yeah. Three for and, 44, I think yeah. was the exact number. <laughs> it's well, burned into my head. Uh, so like that, I don't know how that would have played in your room. And I think that when you're talking about like bench guys, you know, edge of the roster guys, I think that that's where the calculus centers of like, all right, let's do the right thing for our culture yeah. and for our, for our team. By the so, way, anyone who's still mad about the Paul DeYoung thing, because he obviously homered in his debut with the Giants, uh, he's 0 for 12 since and has a 37 WRC plus there. So yeah, he, I mean, he's not lit lit the world of fire. The acquisition cost for Paul DeYoung at the trade deadline kind of told you everything yeah. you needed to know when it's, uh, you know, a Matt double Swanson. A relief prospect, like yeah. relief prospect, kind of an oxymoron, right? And this is an overage guy at double A, like doesn't have, you know, stuff that blows you away metrically. And, oh, by the way, also the Cardinals sent you money and covered the options. Yes. <laughs> there are the option buyouts, excuse me. So yep. 
that that kind of told you everything you need to know about you know how where the value was at yeah and at i mean even point. if a guy like svonson hits right like say he hits next year and he's a piece in a major league bullpen that versus filling a backfilling a shortstop spot yeah it's uh you can understand it even if it didn't work out so i do think yeah the rest of the way like i do think if bo Bichette and matt chapman are available which i'd expect them to be maybe we get some crazy news today. so that's where i was gonna go next was the matt chapman thing just this right middle finger inflammation yeah. flares up again he had a handful of days off where they used those bookended off days to get him like a significant stretch down if something is lingering in your middle finger you could probably play through it but it's not going to heal. Like that's his throwing finger. Uh, that is a finger you use on the baseball bat. And there's a lot, like that's a lot of pressure on your hands. Um, yeah. And also, I don't know if it's, there's causation with the correlation, but he also just hasn't been playing very well around what has been happening here. Do you, do you get the impression that's more serious than the Bo quad thing? That's going to be something he's going to carry the rest of the year. I'm sure it's going to be a pain tolerance thing and mm -hmm. a discomfort Thing. it's not gonna get better by swinging a bat a bunch of times and by throwing a baseball a bunch of times and but at this point if it were i don't know say the mri reveals i guess the mri wouldn't an x-ray would like a small break or something like that like it's probably something you're just playing through and then resting in the offseason anyway right players of this time of year will play through broken bones they'll play through you know damaged pulley tendons like there's all kinds of th I'm, I'm just i'm not saying i'm saying generally here yes. not specifically generally like this is something that we've seen you know? every thoracic spine is inflamed right now <laughs> well that's the thing right like you're gonna hear about a lot of players having inflammation everybody's yeah. got inflammation yeah we all have inflammation you and i do yeah yeah i mean you're probably more diligent with the antioxidants and stuff like that but not quite um <laughs> so there's all kinds of kind of little contraptions they can give him to make mm -hmm. the bat more comfortable right like yeah. to similar some... to we saw vlad's finger taped up yeah you know when he came out of that game or whatever we kind of got to look at it at first base and he could have kind of like a little ring he can put on his finger that'll create a bit of you know leverage between the bat if he's having trouble gripping it so he just doesn't have to grip as much like it's going to be a thing for the rest of the year but like the, my point was provided that bobachette and matt chapman are available the rest of the way I don't get the sense we're going to see an Arelvis Martinez or an Addison Barger this year, which is where I'm sure this is going. Um, I don't, I don't get that sense. I think Nathan Lucas is the extra position player who comes up in September, and I think that Barger and Martinez continue to get regular reps in AAA. My one B follow up to that is chance it's Ernie Clement instead of Nathan Lucas for the extra infield versatility, or do they have enough with the option to just bump Wit back to the infield? If Bo Bichette's playing availability changed, you could look at that. I would say right now it's Nathan Lucas. Mm -hmm. The Blue Jays really value like what he does from a plate approach standpoint, the discipline, the you know, you don't play him regularly and he still steps in and gives you a great plate appearance. That was huge the other week. Right? Defensively. Um, I mean, we saw this weekend too how how nice it would have been to have an extra pinch running option oh, yeah, on the pinch bench. runs well, like solid character guy. So he makes sense. But, I mean, is Ernie on the 40? I think Question so. mark. So I if he is, so. then, yeah, you could look at that. But I think, again, that's somebody who yeah, you just is. keep playing regularly at AAA. If it comes that you need him in September, great. Mm -hmm. But I think Nathan Lucas will be the guy in September one. Yeah, and we know that that role is not whoever it is is not going to play much. Period. Yeah, um, we've already seen this team struggle to you know find enough playing time for David Schneider, who played a couple days in a row here. Um, I know we'll take a break after this question, um, but with David Schneider's playing time moving forward a little bit, Whit Merrifield's cooled off a little bit. Kevin Biggio, I mean, you still plug him in there, but he's cooled a little bit. 
Espinal obviously has more defensive utility, but the bat hasn't really come around. Um, do you see this team trying to, and they did this to be fair to them after the Red Sox series, he did play the entire guardian series. He was over, but had four walks in that series. And then the playing time kind of went away. Um, even with the, the homer on the Saturday against Cincinnati. Uh, do you see that being a, a priority for this next little bit to make sure his bats in the lineup, even if it means someone you don't want to give as many off days to is subbing out? Yeah, he's played his way back in, certainly. I haven't looked at the probables for Washington, if there's a lefty in there. Josiah, uh, yes, on Tuesday, Mackenzie Gore. Tuesday, Gore. right. And so tonight it is... A Josiah Gray. Right, so it's a righty tonight. That'll be interesting to see, right? Because the, if you have Davis Schneider in, he's your second baseman, your DH, or your left fielder. Yeah. Uh, so Patrick Corbin on Wednesday is also a lefty. Okay. So you could potentially sit him today and play him consecutive lefties. I could see that. I can see him sitting today and playing the next two. He's certainly playing his way into more playing time, as you said. But also, as you said, he did that at Fenway. And then he was like one for 14 with some walks. Yeah. But also with a ton of swing and miss. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, I did want. So I know you did this on the broadcast. Yeah. You had the heat maps of where pitchers have been attacking him with fastballs. He did some damage against fastballs this weekend. Have you gotten a chance to talk to him or any of the hitting coaches about Obviously, it is a focus if you strike out on high velocity a number of times. But how does he approach working on that? Like, how does a guy get the reps in on pitch types like that? I absolutely have done that work. And tell me if I'm killing your break by going too no, deep we, into it. No, we're flexible here. Um, it starts with Hunter Mens, who's the assistant pitching coach. And he essentially sets up a high velocity pitching machine in the batting cages and has it fire him elevated fastballs every day. So that is partly to refine his swing and get better mechanically at like getting to those pitches, but it's also to help him recognize them because mm. he'll fire some that are right at the top of the zone, some that are a little bit above, some that so are... you get the brain chunking going on, the pattern recognition stuff. Exactly. You're trying to see enough of them that you can recognize it in the game because if it's at the top of the zone or above, David Schneider wants to let those go. Even if it's called a strike, mm -hmm. you want to let those go because it's just not a damage pitch for him. It's not a place that he can really, you know, get a good swing off at. Like, he doesn't get his barrel there. If it's a bit below that, like, shadow zone at the top, that ball width, a bit below, he can hit those. Mm -hmm. And he hit one against Logan Allen on the weekend. So, like, those are ones that he can hit. But he wants to be laying off the ones that are, like, shadow and up. And that gets back to what he's been working on with Guillermo Martinez, which is intent and mm -hmm. which is approach. And which is how to like get through this. It's it's so remarkable how thorough the scouting is these days. That as soon as Davis Schneider got to the big leagues, that's where everyone was attacking him. Like they like teams knew that mm -hmm. just based off what he's done in the minors. Like that's how thorough the detail yeah. of scouting is. This guy who wasn't who's a non prospect who's completely off the radar. Teams knew right away. Yeah, um, and this is you know we have the stat cast and more importantly video for everything. I mean, we don't publicly necessarily for everything in the minors, but they do. Yep. And the Cleveland Guardians could go to their AAA team and be like, give us everything you got. And what, you know, let us talk to some of your pitchers and things like that. The other the other thing about the high heat, particularly for a shorter guy like David Schneider, and I asked him about this a little bit, and we the conversation ended up being more about the ABS and challenge system generally. Yeah. But a suspicion I've heard a number of people say is that, and I wonder if MLB gives us data on this at some point and just like, hey, here are the results from AAA with the ABS and challenge system and stuff. High strikes to shorter players tend to be 
people seem to think that's the area that human umpires struggle with the most because they don't adjust the height of the strike zone to the letter of the law. And so when you look at AAA, Davis Schneider is getting more of those shadow balls, whereas in the majors, that is more frequently a strike, even if that's not the correct call. Not only David Schneider, like Spencer Horowitz, another guy who figured that out. Eight hits this weekend. And has gamified that. Like that when you look at some of the walk rates, like mm-hmm. the International League, league-wide walk rate is 12%. 360 to OBP league-wide. It's crazy. And yeah. Schneider and Horowitz and other guys with like really, you know, good pe- pitch recognition skills have figured that out. You use that to their advantage in AAA, but then you get to the majors and all of a sudden those pitches are strikes again. Yeah. But for David Schneider, like if he's 0-0 and he gets a high ball strike, that's okay, right? Mm-hmm. Like if he's 1-1 even and he goes to 1-2, that's okay. Anything before two strikes, like if it's not in a damage zone up, take it. If you get striked, that's fine. Go into battle mode with two strikes, like you can still do that. But give the pitcher an opportunity to throw you something in a better spot. Like the double yesterday was a mistake pitch mm-hmm. and Davis Schneider got to that because of his plate approach, right? And because of pitches that he was taking. It's similar to what Dalton Varsho is doing right now. He's just improved his swing decisions. He's narrowed his swing zone. So he's getting to better pitches to hit and he can do damage against mistakes. So that's part of the intent for Davis Schneider is like if it's that shadow zone up, you got to take that pitch. Until there's two strikes and and then you fend it off. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, that's an important consideration. Whenever we talk about swing decisions or chase rate and things like that, it's not just about not swinging at bad pitches. It is about making sure the swings you're taking are on good pitches you can do damage with because, yeah, it doesn't hurt your chase rate to swing at a high fastball that is technically a strike. But if you can't do damage with it, you would much rather continue to work that plate appearance until you get something you can do more damage with. And I think this is, you know, kind of what Bo Bichette has been getting at a couple times when he talks about going up with a plan of attack. Bo is very, very aggressive, but he's very good at being aggressive. Hey, this chunk of the plate or this pitch that I'm looking for. And then, hey, with two strikes, I'm maybe the best defensive two-strike hitter in in baseball, so I can wait it out. (laughs) That's why it's funny when Bo says stuff like that. He's like, why don't you guys just do what I do? It's like when you're a freak of nature and you can get your barrel to anything. It's like I remember in interleague play when Zach Granke was on his first tour with the Royals and he would like do BP and hitting games and then like, like openly talk about his teammate and not understand like why don't you just go up and hit a home run like this is what the pitcher is obviously going to do in this situation and I can hit a home run so why don't you yeah Bo's like it's a preternatural ability to just get his barrel to pitches like his bat to ball his hand eye is just elite 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 so he can do things at the plate he can have an approach at the plate that other players simply cannot because Bo's got a different swing for every pitch for every quadrant of the zone a lot of players, some of them on this team, who have one swing for one quadrant, and that's what they're trying to get to. Yeah, and hey, it can work if you're very, very good in it, but it makes you a little slump prone and a little game plan prone, and some of these sharper teams with pitchers who can, you know, this is maybe why the guys who execute five, six pitches to a couple different zones have had more luck against the Blue Jays than the pure stuff guys. I because think so. the pure stuff guys, it's harder to hit, but if that match, you know, if a Hunter Green high inside fastball to a lefty is something that that lefty deals well with. Poor example in that case with who the Jays have. But um, yeah, you know, that's if that line, if your stuff lines up with something a Blue Jay can do versus Kyle Gibson, who can throw six pitches in four zones and, 
yeah, kind of work around your strengths, there's maybe something to that. That's one of the reasons why the Dean Kramers, the Cal Gibsons have success against the Blues. Like I've heard that from people around the team. It's just like, yeah, we don't really adjust our swings all that much in games. Like, and that that part of that comes down to your personnel, right? And what kind of players you have and what kind of swings they have. Like I said, not everybody's Bo Bichette, but mm-hmm. some guys have like one area of the zone that they like where they do damage and where their swing is good at it. And they're trying to get to that pitch. And if you're Dean Kramer, you can the first time up, like throw fastballs away and the second time up, throw cutters in and show different looks and hitters are going to have a hard time adjusting to that. Well, if uh, you make the playoffs and you end up in the third wildcard spot, you draw a Twins team that has a bunch of pitchers who are good at that kind of stuff. Pablo Lopez, who has both. He's like, here's the stuff. And also I'm going to junk and change pitches on the fly and ditch the league's best changeup for a sweeper at times. And Sonny Gray. Yeah, Joe Ryan. A lot of guys who can, uh, I mean, Bailey Ober, who gave the Jays a lot of trouble with the high spin, the high extension down the mound, fastballs and stuff. But you got to get there first. We're going to take a break. We're going to uh, check your confidence level in uh, that even happening as the Jays sit two and a half out here. Start a three-game set with the Nats tonight. Arden Welling staying with us as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, Jay's will start a three-game set against the Nationals and a 12-game stretch. It was a 15-game stretch on Friday uh, against bad teams, and the Nationals maybe don't qualify anymore. They've won 11 of 15 and are no longer in last place in the NLE, so we can't even do the thing of, hey, they're going to play four last-place teams in a row. Regardless of who the competition is, though, the Blue Jays need to get going, and we've heard uh, some... Quotes from managers that aren't radio friendly. We've heard quotes from players that show there's an urgency here and a frustration level. Blue Jays are two and a half games out, 30 games to go. Mathematically, practically, this is very, very possible still, even if it doesn't feel that way. Arden Zwelling, who is still with us here. uh, How do you feel about where the Jays sit in this playoff race right now? Two and a half games out, a bit of lighter competition here and then a chance to do some damage against the Texas Rangers after this 12 game stretch. But uh, they're running out of time a little bit here. So they got 31 games left Mm -hmm. and they're sitting on 71 wins. Mm -hmm. Those are the facts. I think you want 90 to feel reasonably confident about reaching the postseason. 19 and 12. So you got to go 19 and 12, right? And that's, you know, that sounds daunting. It's not unheard of. Last season, the Blue Jays won 20 times over their final 31 games. The season before that, they won 22. So we've seen them do this. Each of the last two seasons, they waited until September to make their run. For one reason or another, I don't know why. So when you consider the fact that they literally just did better than that each of the last two seasons, you can foresee them going 19 and 12 the rest of the way, particularly considering the fact they have like the softest strength of schedule, objectively, via fangrass, not just saying this, objectively, yep. of any of the teams in this race. And but those they, six games against the Yankees look a lot different now than they did a couple weeks back to but they still have to do it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, during that time, all those AL West teams will start beating up on each other because like Texas is going to play Seattle and like they're all going to play each other. So someone has to lose those games. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I'm like, you know, you're not today. I would put them like 
50-50 to make the playoffs? It's almost exactly where Fangraphs has them. Are this Fangraphs maybe a little bit below? 48.5. Yeah. So around, I'd say it's 50-50, essentially, which is not where you want to be. <laughs> no. Nope. Those, those were the expectations entering the season externally or internally for this team. The divisions are right off. You're not getting there. Ten and a half, yeah. You got 31 games to play. Don't lose more than 12 times the rest of the way. That's and the way look at it. if you start losing two to the Guardians, obviously that they're not in the sample you're talking about, but we would have sat here on the weekend and said, yeah, you got to win. You got to go 20 and 14. And they've already burned two of those losses now uh, against the Guardians. And if you burn them against Washington and then the three last place teams you're playing, it's going to be pretty frustrating. So you're going to want to get a sweep in there. You're going to want to sweep Oakland or sweep Kansas City. Like you're going to Colorado is. I mean, the park's weird, but they're just like irredeemably bad right now. Sweep Colorado. The thing is, Washington's like one of the better teams in baseball. They're since good the now. Yeah. Break. They're another weird team too that kind of gives Toronto trouble, where they don't strike out a lot, they don't walk a lot, and they just put the ball in play. Yeah. And they make a ton of contact. Yeah, right. Sort of Cleveland-ish, honestly. And Cleveland gives them trouble. So you want to try to beat up on some some Washington pitching. But I don't know. You kind of beat up on Cleveland pitching, too. And it didn't go so well. It didn't. uh, I guess with the exception of Tanner Bybee, who still has your your number for whatever reason. Okay, so part of why the Jays are left here to need to go on a run in September is that they haven't gone on a run yet. They have had one win streak of five games or longer this year. They had a six game streak earlier in the year. That is the only time they've railed off five or more in a row. Excuse me. You don't have to win 10, 12, 15 games in a row to be a good baseball team. We did the math earlier. If you won four, if you went four and three every week, you'd let, what was it? 90 or 91. 91. You're doing 91 games. So, Almost exactly where the Jays would land if they won 19 of their last 31 here. They would, and then you would win the World Series because you would win four out of every seven. Yes. Um, <laughs> right? You would win 91 and the win World Series if you go four and three every week throughout the season. Yes. Uh, that's <laughs> that's probably not going to play out that way. It probably doesn't make anyone feel better. Um, would you sign up for that if you could? Because you're signing up for a World Series, right? That's what you're getting. You are. You're also signing up for a very frustrating regular season. But hey, <laughs> here we are. Um, so... Most good teams, most even mediocre teams, will go on a run longer than six games at some point. Last year, the Blue Jays had three win streaks of five or more. Uh, the years, the year before that in 2021, which included uh, a very hot September, they had four such win streaks. You go back to 2015, obviously they were just like five-game win streak after five-game win streak in the second half. Even those 2017 to 2020 lean years, they were able to rail off one or two, five, six, seven-game win streaks. That the Blue Jays haven't done that this year. Again, the one six game win streak. Jokes aside about four and three would win you the World Series. What do you attribute that to? The fact that this team has not, like, it's not completely true that every World Series champion will have at some point during that season felt like the best team in baseball for a week or two. But most of the best teams will do that at some point. There will be a stretch where you look unbeatable and you look like things are clicking. And that just hasn't happened for the Blue Jays yet. It's the answer to every question in baseball. When you take anything in baseball and you say, what do you attribute that to? And the honest answer for every single question is random variance. That's the answer. For, and that's the answer for that. And that's the answer for everything. And it's so unsatisfying, right? And you tell people that, like, no, I want a nice, tidy, clean narrative. I want a silver bullet. I want there to be one thing. I want there to be one person we can fire or one guy we can trade or one person who we blame, one play that wasn't made, one swing. Like, 
we talked about yesterday's game and all the moments and all the different decisions could the have been Biggio made. The Biggio bunt decision, the Schneider pinch run for Kiermaier, the Jay Jackson over Bowden Francis, et cetera. We don't mention that George Springer hit a ball 405 feet to dead center. The Miles Straw caught at the height of the wall. And maybe if there's rain in the forecast and the roof is closed, that ball's out. I thought Springer was going to destroy something in the dugout. <laughs> I, I will. He I may be fe- able to confirm that he did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Without there going you go. any further. Yeah. Yes, I I have a good seat for that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, like, but that's, like, yet another thing, right, in mm-hmm. that game that could have gone the other way. It's just, it's a crazy, fluky sport. And if you watch nine innings every day, I mean, you're going to, it's random variance. Like, a lot of things are going to happen that are all going to work in concert with one another to create these outcomes. I think that's why, like, so many front office types, when they speak publicly to people like me and scrums, like, sound so detached and sounds so aloof especially here <laughs> because but it's every market Blake. yeah like they, I know. it's it's every guy and every it's every gm it's every club president now right yeah. like it's it's derek falvey it's chris antonetti it's heim bloom it's ashman all, yeah like they all sound so detached and aloof because they kind of have to be because they understand how much randomness they're up against and how chaotic these outcomes can be and that the best they can do is try to put the percentages in their favor and put the odds in their favor. So I can understand that from a front office perspective. I can, you know, disagree with it being your core PR strategy down the stretch when the (laughs) fan base is a little frustrated, but I can understand it. Um, Obviously this is a little, those bursts of randomness, the, the waves of variance, the, what's it? The drunkard's walk is the book on how to understand randomness in real life. Uh, That is probably a lot more frustrating to live through day to day and inning to inning. If you are a part of that coaching staff, and certainly if you're a part of the lineup, Um, what is your read on, you know, we've heard comments from Gosman, from Bassett, from John Schneider on this team's inability, focus more on the urgency to get this run, but a little bit reflecting on the inability to put, you know, things together. I don't think you can go to those guys and be like, Hey, George Springer, like that ball got caught randomness. That sucks. Right. Um, What is the, what what else do you blame? Right. Like what else can you say when you hit a ball 405 feet? I know it's, but like those things happen and it's, (laughs) I don't think I have not hit a ball like that, that got robbed, but I'd imagine it's really annoying to hear it. Uh, And to try to like compartmentalize that that's a part of it and process over results when you're two and a half games out with 31 to go here. And you're 600 plate appearances into a grind of a season and you've been playing every day and you're mentally worn out and fatigued physically and just completely like beaten down by the relentless failure that you have been dealing with for the prior five months in that moment the last thing you want to hear is random variance particularly when all year we've been talking about how george springer has the amazing expected stats because of his contact quality and then you hear the gm come out the other day and say hey we make great contact like we love our contact quality our underlying metrics suggest that like we should go on a run and that we should start performing better offensively I don't know what else you can do other than just like yell at the sky. I think it's yell at the sky time. Is <laughs> well, we're starting to see it right? though, right? And like I, I joked about, you know, John Schneider swearing in a lot of quotes lately, but I do think like that's our best proxy for for urgency is like, hey, the quotes are getting more extreme and guys are showing the frustration more. Um, if you are in that room though, how are you managing that this last little bit? Because if if that's not a message that guys can hear, you obviously have to stay them on focus. And there are some veterans on this team, but like. I'd imagine they are ascribing a lot more of what's happening to things they can control than things they can't control right now. 
Chris Bassett said the other day, because I asked him a question similar to this of like, how do you, you know, how do you deal <laughs> essentially? And he said, you just focus on tomorrow and you just think about tomorrow. And it's like one of the rare instances in life where actually it makes sense to just focus on the next tree rather than the forest. Mm-hmm. You only win one game every day. So what can you do to win that game, to be a little bit better, to find a better outcome? It's not the kind of sport where like, trying harder is a thing or right, like, no, that's how you end up as danny jansen you know trying to turn a double into a triple and your heart's in the right place but you, yeah. you don't get there and it's the wrong read right um but like part of what made danny jansen a better hitter over the last several years was not trying harder and just buying into his approach and what works for him and saying like yeah i'm not gonna try to be this all fields guy i'm gonna just be a pull hitter and i'm just gonna simplify this so i think that as a player you really do just simplify it to like what's the game tomorrow what's josiah gray throw what's my approach against him how am i how are we going to win this game like i just i wish there was like one like fell swoop i wish there was a magic bullet like i wish there was like one cord one string you can pull surely john schneider would have pulled it by now if it existed and here's where i get into if if things were perfect and we knew by the end of 162 everything would tidally like if 162 was the perfect sample size and everything would land in the right place i'd look at someone like a team like the washington nationals that has been hot lately but overperformed i'd look at a guy like josiah gray whose expected stats are all like a run worse than his actual era he has a whip of almost 1.5 but a sub four era bad hard hit data, doesn't strike a lot of guys out, not a huge whiff rate, all these things, and yet he's still... And I'd be like, okay, that's the guy. Positive regression here, negative regression here, let's go. This would be one of those instances. Obviously, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Another guy tonight, another righty that throws seven different pitches uh, could be more of a method. What are you looking for from... I mean, we got three minutes left here. Uh, you got to force guys like that to execute. That's yeah. what Dean Kramer did really well. He executed his cutter really well. Kyle Gibson talked to some people with the Blue Jays after like that start. Like just he executed really the well. Sinker, yeah. To the edges, right? Like kind of went left when hitters thought he was going right. Kind of stayed ahead of it. You see it the other way with Noah Syndergaard. Didn't execute some pitches very well yesterday and the Blue Jays did some damage against them, right? So you got to try to force those guys to make mistakes over the heart of the plate. Syndergaard, a little uh, salt in the wound. Uh, him getting DFA'd after the game. After a win, like everybody's celebrating and having a good time. Yeah. And you know they had to do it quick because it's a getaway day, right? Yeah. So they straight into Tito's office. Hey, man. <laughs> and like, you didn't pitch well, but you gave them length. You gave yeah. them six innings. He's probably uh-huh. looking at like, what What more do you, you're out of the playoff race. The only thing you are asking for right now is eat some innings so we don't have to burn service time on the next guy. Yeah, that, was, that would have been a tough pill. So you can see some of that like regression happen quickly with um like, just back to your earlier point with relievers. You look at Jimmy Garcia right now, like you look at his regression back to the guy mm-hmm. who he's been. You look yesterday of Jay Jackson, who threw a really bad pitch, right? Mm-hmm. And who had been playing much better than you would have projected him to for a long time. You should expect some regression for Garcia and for Jackson Jackson in different directions. Um, that can happen a lot quicker with the short samples of relievers, mm-hmm. with hitters. Uh, you know, it's not it's not always so perfect, but didn't you know right recently that you, you know, a hitter can turn um turn the season around in one month. Yes, yes. It was a, a good piece. And if Eno weren't on the West Coast, I would have asked him to come on and talk about All it right. this morning. But uh Stuck yeah, co- coming off the weekend, I don't wanna I don't wanna ask him uh that. So the Jays will get in action tonight, seven o'clock. Kevin Gosman against Josiah Gray, Jose Brios against Mackenzie Gore tomorrow, Chris Bassett against Patrick Corbin in the 3 p.m. start on Wednesday as we 
discussed earlier with righty, lefty, lefty coming up. Maybe it's a, a Davis Schneider off night tonight, even though he's been, I mean, you could also keep his bat in, but he's definitely starting uh, the next two days. We'll hear more on Matt Chapman a little bit later, hear more on Bo Bichette a little bit later, see if those guys are in the lineup. Um, as an update, if you missed it earlier, Chad Green pitched Saturday and Sunday. He is as close as close can be, but rosters expand Friday. So maybe we'll just wait that one out. Uh, Spencer Horowitz, eight hit weekend. <laughs> Arden says not on the radar for to come up and Where's hit he gonna play? one plate appearance a week. Who's playing time is he taking? Nobody's. Brandon Belts. Uh, David Schneider already juniors. can't get in. So right? yeah, it's Belts or Vlad's got to sit if you want to play Horowitz. Yep, which is uh, which is tough. And you know they've tried every single player at AAA at second base so far this year. From what I heard, his stint there, his two games there did not go uh, the greatest. Uh, Jays with a 48.5% chance of making the playoffs. As of this morning, they'll try to tilt that in the right direction tonight. Gosman against Josiah Gray. Uh, Jesse Rubinoff and Brent Gunning coming up next. Blair and Barker have you 5-7 to seven to tee that game up proper. They'll also have post game for you. Of course, we'll have it uh, on TV. Dan Schulman continues to pull double duty with Canada basketball who play at 9:30 AM tomorrow. So uh, send your energy and coffees to Dan Schulman. This next little bit, uh, Ben Wagner. And I think Madison Shipman on the call. I should double check that, but we'll have it for you on the Sportsnet radio network. Arden Zwelling. Thanks for taking the hour out, man. I appreciate it. Anytime you want to talk deadlifts, I'm here. Yeah, we'll do Anytime. it. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get him on the show and bring you back on. Uh, thanks to David Schoenfield as well. Thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. We'll talk to you at 10 a.m. tomorrow.